Third Division, The Religious Life, Part 2 of Human, All Too Human, a book for free spirits by Friedrich Nietzsche. Translated by Helen Zimmern, 1846-1934. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Aaron Rivera. Third Division, The Religious Life, Part 2. 131. The Painful Consequences of Religion. However much we may think we have weaned ourselves from religion, it has nevertheless not been done so thoroughly as to deprive us of pleasure in encountering religious sensations and moods in music, for instance. And if a philosophy shows us the justification of metaphysical hopes and the deep peace of soul to be thence acquired, and speaks, for instance, of the whole certain gospel in the gaze of Raphael's Madonnas, we receive such statements and expositions particularly warmly, here the philosopher finds it easier to prove that which he desires to give corresponds to a heart that desires to receive. Hence it may be observed how the less thoughtful free spirits really only take offense at the dogmas, but are well acquainted with the charm of religious sensations. They are sorry to lose hold of the latter for the sake of the former. Scientific philosophy must be very careful not to smuggle in errors on the ground of that need, a need which has grown up and is consequently temporary, even logicians speak of presentiments of truth in ethics and in art, for instance, of the suspicion that the nature of things is one, which should be forbidden to them between the carefully established truths and such presaged things, there remains the unbridged chasm that those are due to intellect and these to requirement. Hunger does not prove that food exists to satisfy it, but that it desires food. To presage does not mean the acknowledgement of the existence of a thing in any one degree, but its possibility, insofar as it is desired or feared. Presage does not advance one step into the land of certainty. We believe involuntarily that the portions of a philosophy which are tinged with religion are better proved than others, but actually it is the contrary. But we have the inward desire that it may be so, that that which makes blessed, therefore, may be also the true. This desire misleads us to accept bad reasons for good ones. 132. Of the Christian Need of Redemption With careful reflection it must be possible to obtain an explanation free from mythology of that process in the soul of a Christian which is called the need of redemption, consequently a purely psychological explanation. Up to the present, the psychological explanations of religious conditions and processes have certainly been held in some disrepute inasmuch as a theology which called itself free carried on its unprofitable practice in this domain. For here from the beginning, as the mind of its founder, Schleiermacher, gives us reason to suppose, the preservation of the Christian religion and the continuance of Christian theology was kept in view, a theology which was to find a new anchorage in the psychological analysis of religious facts, and above all, a new occupation. Unconcerned about such predecessors, we hazard the following interpretation of the phenomenon in question. Man is conscious of certain actions which stand far down in the customary rank of actions. He even discovers himself in a tendency towards similar actions, a tendency which appears to him almost as unchangeable as his whole nature. How willingly would he try himself in that other species of actions which in the general valuation are recognized as the loftiest and highest? How gladly would he feel himself to be full of the good consciousness that should follow an unselfish mode of thought? But unfortunately, he stops short at this wish, 
and the discontent at not being able to satisfy it is added to all the other discontents which his lot in life or the consequences of those above-mentioned evil actions have aroused in him. So that a deep ill-humor is the result, with the search for a physician who could remove this and all its causes. This condition would not be felt so bitterly if man would only compare himself frankly with other men. Then he would have no reason for being dissatisfied with himself to a particular extent. He would only bear his share of the common burden of human dissatisfaction and imperfection. But he compares himself with a being who is said to be capable only of those actions which are called unegoistic, and to live in the perpetual consciousness of an unselfish mode of thought, i.e. with God. It is because he gazes into this clear mirror that his image appears to him so dark, so unusually warped. Then he is alarmed by the thought of that same creature, insofar as it floats before his imagination as a retributive justice. In all possible small and great events, he thinks he recognizes its anger and menaces, that he even feels its scourge strokes as judge and executioner. Who will help him in this danger, which, by the prospect of an immeasurable duration of punishment, exceeds in horror all the other terrors of the idea? 133. Before we examine the further consequences of this mental state, let us acknowledge that it is not through his guilt and sin that man has gotten to this condition, but through a series of errors of reason. That it was the fault of the mirror if his image appeared so dark and hateful to him, and that that mirror was his work, the very imperfect work of human imagination and power of judgment. In the first place, a nature that is only capable of purely unegoistic actions is more fabulous than the phoenix. It cannot even be clearly imagined, just because, when closely examined, the whole idea, unegoistic action, vanishes into air. No man ever did a thing which was done only for others and without any personal motive. How should he be able to do anything which had no relation to himself, and therefore without inward obligation, which must always have its foundation in a personal need? How could the ego act without ego? A god who, on the contrary, is all love, as such a one is often represented, would not be capable of a single unegoistic action, whereby one is reminded of a saying of Lichtenberg, which is certainly taken from a lower sphere. We cannot possibly feel for others. As the saying is, we feel only for ourselves. This sounds hard, but it is not so really if it be rightly understood. We do not love father or mother or wife or child, but the pleasant sensations they cause for us. Or, as Rochefoucauld says, Si on croit aimer sa matrice pour l'amour d'elle, on est bien trompe. To know the reason why actions of love are valued more than others, not on account of their nature, namely, but of their usefulness, we should compare the examinations already mentioned, on the origin of moral sentiments, but should a man desire to be entirely like that god of love, to do and wish everything for others and nothing for himself? The latter is impossible for the reason that he must do very much for himself to be able to do something for the love of others. Then it is taken for granted that the other is sufficiently egoistic to accept that sacrifice again and again, that living for him, so that the people of love and sacrifice have an interest in the continuance of those who are loveless and incapable of sacrifice, and in order to exist, the highest morality would be obliged positively to compel the existence of unmorality, whereby it would certainly annihilate itself. Further, the conception of a god disturbs and humbles so long as it is believed in, 
But as to how it arose, there can no longer be any doubt in the present state of the science of comparative ethnology. And with a comprehension of this origin, all belief falls to the ground. The Christian who compares his nature with God's is like Don Quixote, who undervalued his own bravery because his head was full of the marvelous deeds of the heroes of the chivalric. Romances, the standard of measurement in both cases, belong to the domain of fable. But if the idea of God is removed, so is also the feeling of sin as a trespass against divine laws, as a stain in a creature vowed to God. Then, perhaps, there still remains that dejection which is intergrown and connected with the fear of the punishment of worldly justice, or of the scorn of men. The dejection of the pricks of conscience, the sharpest thorn in the consciousness of sin, is always removed if we recognize that through our own deed we have sinned against human descent, human laws and ordinances, still that we have not imperiled the eternal salvation of the soul and its relation to the Godhead. And if man succeeds in gaining philosophic conviction of the absolute necessity of all actions and their entire irresponsibility, and absorbing this into his flesh and blood, even those remains of the pricks of conscience vanish. 131. Now if the Christian, as we have said, has fallen into the way of self-contempt and conscience of certain errors through a false, unscientific interpretation of his actions and sensations, he must notice with great surprise how that state of contempt, the pricks of conscience and displeasure generally, does not endure, how sometimes there come hours when all this is wafted away from the soul and he feels himself once more free and courageous. In truth, the pleasure in himself, the comfort of his own strength, together with the necessary weakening through time of every deep emotion, has usually been victorious. Man loves himself once again. He feels it. But precisely this new love, this self-esteem, seems to him incredible. He can only see in it the wholly undeserved descent of a stream of mercy from on high. If he formerly believed that in every event he could recognize warnings, menaces, punishments, and every kind of manifestation of divine anger, he now finds divine goodness in all his experiences. This event appears to him to be full of love. That one a helpful hint, a third, and, indeed, his whole happy mood, a proof that God is merciful. As formerly in his state of pain, he interpreted his actions falsely, so now he misinterprets his experiences. His mood of comfort, he believes, to be the working of a power operating outside of himself. The love with which he really loves himself seems to him to be divine love, that which he calls mercy, and the prologue to redemption, is actually self-forgiveness, self-redemption. 135. Therefore, a certain false psychology, a certain kind of imaginative interpretation of motives and experiences, is the necessary preliminary for one to become a Christian and to feel the need of redemption. When this error of reason and imagination is recognized, one ceases to be a Christian. 136. Of Christian Asceticism and Holiness As greatly as isolated thinkers have endeavored to depict as a miracle the rare manifestations of morality, which are generally called asceticism and holiness, miracles which it would be almost an outrage and sacrilege to explain by the light of common sense, as strong also in the inclination towards this outrage. A mighty impulse of nature has at all times led to a protest against those manifestations. Science, insofar as it is an imitation of nature, to the great joy of the above-mentioned worshippers of the morally marvelous. For, speaking generally, 
The unexplained must be absolutely inexplicable. The inexplicable absolutely unnatural, supernatural, wonderful. Thus runs the demand in the soul of all religious and metaphysical people, also of artists, if they should happen to be thinkers at the same time, whilst the scientist sees in this demand the evil principle in itself. The general, first probability upon which one lights in the contemplation of holiness and asceticism is this, that their nature is a complicated one, for almost everywhere, within the physical world as well as in the moral, the apparently marvelous has been successfully traced back to the complicated, the many conditioned. Let us venture, therefore, to isolate separate impulses from the soul of saints and ascetics, and finally to imagine them as intergrown. 137. There is a defiance of self to the sublimest manifestation of which belong many forms of asceticism. Certain individuals have such great need of exercising their power and love of ruling that, in default of other objects, or because they have never succeeded otherwise, they finally excogiate the idea of tyrannizing over certain parts of their own nature, portions or degrees of themselves. Thus many a thinker confesses to views which evidently do not serve either to increase or improve his reputation. Many a one deliberately calls down the scorn of others when by keeping silence he could easily have remained respected. Others contradict former opinions and do not hesitate to be called inconsistent. On the contrary, they strive after this and behave like reckless riders who like a horse best when it has grown wild, unmanageable, and covered with sweat. Thus man climbs dangerous paths up the highest mountains in order that he may laugh to scorn his own fear and his trembling knees. Thus the philosopher owns to views on asceticism, humility, holiness, in the brightest of which his own picture shows to the worst possible disadvantage. This crushing of oneself, this scorn of one's own nature, this spernere se sperm, of which religion has made so much, is really a very high degree of vanity. The whole moral of the Sermon on the Mount belongs here. Man takes a genuine delight in doing violence to himself by these exaggerated claims, and afterward idolizing these tyrannical demands of his soul. In every ascetic morality, man worships one part of himself as a god, and is obliged, therefore, to diabolize the other parts. 138. Man is not equally moral at all hours. This is well known. If his morality is judged to be the capability for great self-sacrificing resolutions and self-denial, which, when continuous and grown habitual, are called holiness, he is most moral in the passions. The higher emotion provides him with entirely new motives, of which he, sober and cold as usual, perhaps does not even believe himself capable. How does this happen? Probably because of the proximity of everything great and highly exciting. If man is once wrought up to a state of extraordinary suspense, he is as capable of carrying out a terrible revenge as of a terrible crushing of his need for revenge. Under the influence of powerful emotion, he desires in any case the great, the powerful, the immense. And if he happens to notice that the sacrifice of himself satisfies him as well as, or better than, the sacrifice of others, he chooses that. Actually, therefore, he only cares about discharging his emotion. In order to ease his tension, he seizes the enemy's spears and buries them in his breast. That there was something great in self-denial and not in revenge had to be taught to mankind by long habit. A godhead that sacrificed itself was the strongest, most effective symbol of this kind of greatness. As the conquest of the most difficult enemy, the sudden mastering of an affection, 
Thus this denial appears, and so far it passes for the summit of morality. In reality, it is a question of the confusion of one's idea with another, while the temperament maintains an equal height, an equal level. Temperate men who are resting from their passions no longer understand the morality of those moments, but the general admiration of those who had the same experiences uphold them. Pride is their consolation when affection and the understanding of their deed vanish. Therefore, at bottom, even those actions of self-denial are not moral, inasmuch as they are not done strictly with regard to others. Rather, the other only provides the highly strung temperament with an opportunity of relieving itself through that denial. 139. In many respects, the ascetic seeks to make life easy for himself, usually by complete subordination to a strange will or a comprehensive law and ritual. Something like the way a Brahmin leaves nothing whatever to his own decision, but refers every moment to holy precepts. This submission is a powerful means of attaining self-mastery. Man is occupied and is therefore not bored, and yet has no incitement to self-will or passion. After a completed deed, there is no feeling of responsibility, and with it no tortures of remorse. We have renounced our own will once and forever, and this is easier than only renouncing it occasionally, as it is also easier to give up a desire entirely than to keep it within bounds. When we remember the present relation of man to the state, we find that, even here, unconditional obedience is more convenient than conditional. The saint, therefore, makes his life easier by absolute renunciation of his personality, and we are mistaken if in that phenomenon we admire the loftiest heroism of morality. In any case, it is more difficult to carry one's personality through without vacillation and unclearness than to liberate oneself from it in the above-mentioned manner. Moreover, it requires far more spirit and consideration. 140. After having found in many of the less easily explicable actions manifestations of that pleasure in emotion per se, I should like to recognize also in self-contempt, which is one of the signs of holiness, and likewise in the deeds of self-torture, through hunger and scourging, mutilation of limbs, feigning of madness, a means by which those natures fight against the general wariness of their life-will, their nerves. They employ the most painful irritants and cruelties in order to emerge for a time, at all events, from that dullness and boredom into which they so frequently sink through their great mental indolence and that submission to a strange will already described. 141. The commonest means which the ascetic and saint employs to render life still endurable and amusing consists in occasional warfare with alternate victory and defeat. For this he requires an opponent, and finds it in the so-called inward enemy. He principally makes use of this inclination to vanity, love of honor and rule, and of his sensual desires, that he may be permitted to regard his life as a perpetual battle and himself as a battlefield upon which good and evil spirits strive with alternating success. It is well known that sensual imagination is moderated, indeed almost dispelled, by regular sexual intercourse, whereas, on the contrary, it is rendered unfettered and wild by abstinence or irregularity. The imagination of many Christian saints was filthy to an extraordinary degree, by virtue of those theories that these desires were actual demons raging within them, they did not feel themselves to be too responsible. To this feeling we owe the very instructive frankness of their self-confessions. It was to their interest that this strife should always be maintained in one degree or another, because, as we have already said, their empty life was thereby entertained. 
But in order that the strife might seem sufficiently important and arouse the enduring sympathy and admiration of non-saints, it was necessary that sensuality should be ever more reviled and branded. The danger of eternal damnation was so tightly bound up with these things that it was highly probable that for whole centuries Christians generated children with a bad conscience, wherewith humanity has certainly suffered a great injury. And yet, here truth is all topsy-turvy, which is particularly unsuitable for truth. Certainly Christianity has said that every man is conceived and born in sin, and in the insupportable superlative Christianity of Calderon, this thought again appears, tied up and twisted, as the most distorted paradox there is, in the well-known lines, The greatest sin of man is that he was ever born. In all pessimistic religions, the act of generation was looked upon as evil in itself. This is by no means the verdict of all mankind, not even of all pessimists. For instance, Empedocles saw in all erotic things nothing shameful, diabolical, or sinful. But rather, in the great plain of disaster he saw only one hopeful and redeeming figure, that of Aphrodite. She appeared to him as a guarantee that the strife should not endure eternally, but that the specter should one day be given over to a gentler daemon. The actual Christian pessimist had, as has been said, an interest in the dominance of a diverse opinion. For the solitude and spiritual wilderness of their lives they required an ever-living enemy, and a generally recognized enemy, through whose fighting and overcoming they could constantly represent themselves to non-saints as incomprehensible, half-supernatural beings. But when at last this enemy took to flight forever in consequence of their mode of life and their impaired health, they immediately understood how to populate their interior with new daemons. The rising and falling of the scales of pride and humility sustain their brooding minds as well as the alterations of desire and peace of soul. At that time, psychology served not only to cast suspicion upon everything human, but to oppress, to scourge, to crucify. People wished to find themselves as bad and wicked as possible. They sought anxiety for the salvation of their souls, despair of their own strength. Everything natural with which man has connected the idea of evil and sin as, for instance, he is still accustomed to do with regard to the erotic, troubles and clouds the imagination, causes a frightened glance, makes man quarrel with himself and uncertain and distrustful of himself. Even his dreams have the flavor of a restless conscience. And yet in the reality of things, the suffering from what is natural is entirely without foundation. It is only the consequence of opinions about things. It is easily seen how men grow worse by considering the inevitably natural as bad, and afterwards always feeling themselves made thus. It is the trump card of religion and metaphysics, which wish to have man evil and sinful by nature, to cast suspicion on nature and thus really to make him bad. For he learns to feel himself evil since he cannot divest himself of the clothing of nature. After living for long a natural life, he gradually comes to feel himself weighed down by such a burden of sin that supernatural powers are necessary to lift this burden, and therewith arises the so-called need of redemption, which corresponds to no real but only to an imaginary sinfulness. If we survey the separate moral demands of the earliest times of Christianity, it will everywhere be found that requirements are exaggerated in order that man cannot satisfy them. The intention is not that he should become more moral, but that he should feel himself as sinful as possible. If man had not found this feeling agreeable, why would he have thought out such an idea and stuck to it for so long? As in the antique world an immeasurable power of intellect and invertiveness was expanded in multiplying the pleasure of life by festive cults, 
So also in the age of Christianity, an immeasurable amount of intellect has been sacrificed to another endeavor. Man must by all means be made to feel himself sinful and thereby be excited, enlivened, ensouled. To excite, enliven, ensoul at all costs. Is not that the watchword of a relaxed, overripe, overcultured age? The range of all natural sensations has been gone over a hundred times. The soul had grown weary, whereupon the saint and the ascetic invited a new species of stimulants for life. They presented themselves before the public eye, not exactly as an example for the many, but as a terrible and yet ravishing spectacle which took place on that borderland between world and overworld, wherein at that time all people believed they saw now rays of heavenly light and now unholy tongues of flame glowing in the depths. The saint's eye, fixed upon the terrible meaning of this short earthly life, upon the nearness of that last decision concerning endless new spans of existence, this burning eye and a half-wasted body made men of the old world tremble to their very depths. To gaze, to turn shudderingly away, to feel anew the attraction of the spectacle and to give way to it, to drink deep of it till the soul quivered with fire and ague. That was the last pleasure that antiquity invented, after it had grown blunted even at the sight of beast-baiting and human combats. 142. Now to sum up. That condition of soul in which the saint or embryo saint rejoiced was composed of elements which we all know well, only that under the influence of other than religious conceptions they exhibit themselves in other colors and are then accustomed to encounter man's blame as fully as, with the decoration of religion and the ultimate meaning of existence, they may reckon on receiving admiration and even worship, might reckon, at least, in former ages. Sometimes the saint practices that defiance of himself which is a near relative of domination at any cost and gives a feeling of power even to the most lonely. Sometimes his swollen sensibility leaps from the desire to let his passions have full play into the desire to overthrow them like wild horses under the mighty pressure of a proud spirit. Sometimes he desires a complete cessation of all disturbing, tormenting, irritating sensations, a waking sleep, a lasting rest in the lap of a dull, animal, and plant-like indolence. Sometimes he seeks strife and arouses it within himself, because boredom has shown him its yawning countenance. He scourges his self-adoration with self-contempt and cruelty. He rejoices in the wild tumult of his desires and the sharp pain of sin, even in the idea of being lost. He understands how to lay a trap for his emotions, for instance, even for his keen love of ruling, so that he sinks into the most utter abasement and his tormented soul is thrown out of joint by this contrast. And finally, if he longs for visions, conversations with the dead or with divine beings, it is at bottom a rare kind of delight that he covets. Perhaps that delight in which all others are united. Novalis, an authority on questions of holiness through experience and instinct, tells the whole secret with naive joy. It is strange enough that the association of lust, religion, and cruelty did not long ago draw men's attention to their close relationship and common tendency. 143. That which gives the saint his historical value is not the thing he is, but the thing he represents in the eyes of the unsaintly. It was through the fact that errors were made about him, that the state of his soul was falsely interpreted, that men separated themselves from him as much as possible, as from something incomparable and strangely superhuman, that he acquired the extraordinary power which he exercised over the imagination of whole nations and whole ages. He did not know himself, 
He himself interpreted the writing of his moods, inclinations, and actions according to an art of interpretation which was as exaggerated and artificial as the spiritual interpretations of the Bible. The distorted and diseased in his nature, with its combination of intellectual poverty, evil knowledge, ruined health, and overexcited nerves, remained hidden from his own sight, as well as from that of his spectators. He was not a particularly good man, and still less was he a particularly wise one, but he represented something that exceeded the human standard in goodness and wisdom. The belief in him supported the belief in the divine and miraculous, in a religious meaning of all existence, in an impeding day of judgment, in the evening glory of the world's sunset, which glowed over the Christian nations. The shadowy form of the saint grew to vast dimensions. It grew to such a height that even in our own age, which no longer believes in God, there are still thinkers who believe in the saint. 144. It need not be said that to this description of the saint which has been made from an average of the whole species, there may be opposed many a description which could give a more agreeable impression. Certain exceptions stand out from among this species, it may be through great mildness and philanthropy. It may be through the magic of unusual energy. Others are attractive in the highest degree, because certain wild ravings have poured streams of light on their whole being, as is the case, for instance, with the famous founder of Christianity, who thought he was the son of God and therefore felt himself sinless. So that through this idea, which we must not judge too hardly because the whole antique world swarms with sons of God, he reached that same goal, that feeling of complete sinlessness, complete irresponsibility, which everyone can now acquire by means of science. Neither have I mentioned the Indian saints, who stand midway between the Christian saint and the Greek philosopher, and insofar represent no pure type. Knowledge, science, such as existed then, the uplifting above other men through logical discipline and training of thought, were as much fostered by the Buddhists as distinguishing signs of holiness as the same quantity in the Christian world are repressed and branded as signs of unholiness. End of Third Division, The Religious Life